Tonight, I'm going to teach on being sifted by Satan. Sounds exciting, doesn't it? Until it happens to you, then it's not so much of a party. <laughs> Job chapter 1, we know the story of Job. Let, let's, let's qualify this with Job. Job is considered the oldest book in the Bible as far as it was written before the Pentateuch was written. That is uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Job is generally agreed upon to be, have been written before Moses wrote the Pentateuch. So consequently, what you find in it is not good doctrine. It's a historical book. It's actually considered one of the books of poetry. And so when we consider Job and his testimony and these men, his friends, speaking to him, Elihu and Elisha and all these other guys, we have to be mindful there is no Moses in their life. There's no law of Moses in their life. These are men among some of the earliest in the earth to whom the Almighty has begun to reveal himself to. So their knowledge of God is very, very limited compared to, say, us, who now have the entirety of the Old Testament, not just the Pentateuch, the first five books. We have the Psalms, and we have the prophets, and we have the history books, and we have the, the, the minor prophets, and we have the Gospels, and the book of Acts, and Galatians through the Revelation, Romans and, and through the Revelation. We have a lot of information given to us. So I say that to say we should be very careful when we decide we want to bring doctrine out of the book of Job, especially when it contradicts things that have been revealed otherwise. We know that we build doctrine by grabbing a topic and finding as many scriptures that back up that topic as possible. If all we take is one little scripture, the most famous out of Job is the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Okay, so then how do you rectify that with Jesus Christ? Remember our Savior, who probably trumps Job concerning doctrine. When, when Jesus said, the thief comes but to still kill and destroy. So is God and the thief the same? Are they doing the same thing? So we have to be able to qualify and maybe explain what, why Job said that, maybe why we don't adhere to it. Makes for a good worship song that sells a lot of records and really puts people in a weird place. All the promises of God are yes and amen. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father lights with whom there's no variable, no shadow of turning. So go ahead and rectify that with your Job doctrine. Years ago, when I was doing judo and jujitsu, one of my converts was my buddy Andrew the hog hunter. Andrew was as ignorant as can imagine with Scripture. When I witnessed to him, he had gotten a hold of a Bible. He was from Australia. He would immigrated to the States when he was 13 or 14. I met him when I was 25. He was 26. Uh, rock climber. Before he used to grow weed hydroponically in a hidden basement on UT campus, and he they did a lot of illegal stuff. He was he used to sell nitrous balloons to the sorority sisters until they realized they could make more money if they cut out the nitrous man. So then they went and robbed him with guns to steal all his nitrous tanks. He said that way we upped our market, our margin. So then he was growing weed hydroponically in this hidden basement, and anyway. Uh, very unique character. I preach him from time to time. I still stay in touch with him a little bit. So Andrew gets born again. And when I met him, he was reading the Bible because he wanted to know about God, but he was reading it like a novel. So he had started in Genesis and had gotten through the Kings. And so when I was evangelizing him one night after judo, we were out in the rain. I was trying to teach him about God. I said, well, you know, it's like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he said, who? Like, That's right. That's further in the Bible. You haven't gotten there yet. Well, it's like, and I would say, like Daniel. Who? Well, it's like Jonah. Who? He didn't have a record of any of these guys. So he gets born again very easily. Then he gets spirit-filled very easily. And he's coming to our church. And all he's hearing is good faith doctrine, dominion doctrine, healing doctrine. And so he had a buddy he was working with in the National Park who was going through a divorce. His kids were angry at him. He was, he was fighting some sickness. And so his, he was trying to help the guy. So listen, let me pray for you. God wants to heal you. God wants to deliver you. Because that's what we were taught, Andrew. He didn't have any other background. So his, his co-worker said, man, I don't know. I just feel like I'm going through a Job experience. So Andrew says, well, you know, what Job go through? He doesn't know that Job's a Bible guy. And he says, well, you know, <laughs> you know Job said the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And, and God did this to Job. And, and, and Andrew said, Job said that? Yeah. And my friend says, I don't know who this Job fellow is, but he sounds like an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So when we look at the book of Job, we have to judge Job in light of the whole rest of the scripture. Because if you just jump into Job and start building doctrine, you're going to get a little goofed up. The middle part of my Job is heavily marked up because there's some great things that Elihu says. And then the end of Job is some heavily marked up because there's some great things God says. And then between there, it's like a minefield. And you don't run fast through that. And when you don't know what it means, leave it alone and go to Psalms and rejoice. All right. So Job 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. So the Bible presents this like this happens on a regular basis. I personally believe it still does. There are those who would disagree with that and say because of the resurrection of Christ, Satan can no longer come and present himself to God. They say, furthermore, he's been cast down. But when you see that he's cast down, that's in the revelation in future tense. Plus, if he's called the accuser of the brethren and we have an advocate with the father, what's the advocate with the father advocating for if there's not an accuser of the brethren standing before our God, the righteous judge, making accusations? That's a doctrine built out of 1 John chapter 1 and chapter 2. Anyway, regardless of how you want to believe it, I believe he still comes to make accusation. Here we see he presents himself before God, along with the other sons of God. We would call those angels. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Where are you coming from? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. That sounds like 1 Peter 5. The enemy, the lion, walking to and fro, seeking whom he may devour. So we have doctrinal confirmation here. We can trust this. Plus, this is not Job talking. This is an angelic visitation. This is a record of what's going on in heaven. And the Lord said unto Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that fears God and escheweth evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does God, excuse me, does Job fear God for nothing? Now, I want you to take note here because when we jump to the Gospels in a minute, there's going to be a contrast in how the conversation takes place between God and Satan. Here, Satan's walking around and God offers Job. It's almost as though uh, Job couldn't see or the devil couldn't see Job and God has to say, hey, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? We might start applying this to ourselves right now. Could the Lord ever consider you his servant? And we've taught that around here for quite a while, that a servant is a term you earn. And you earn it, check this out, by serving. And this isn't like McDonald's ice cream that's soft serve. Or steakhouse ice cream, which is self-serve. You serve God, which means you make sacrifices. Now, you might fancy yourself a servant of God, but this might be something you ask a neighbor in the body of Christ and say, would you consider me a servant of God? And then if you do, then, then ask yourself, who do I think is the greatest servant of Jesus Christ I know? And then maybe if you want to compare your service to them and see how much you can come up. So if we're going to talk about beating the devil, which is kind of what we want to aim for tonight, we got to first begin by acknowledging, am I or am I not a servant? When you live for self, you're not a servant. And servants don't just kind of come and go as they please. Uh, you don't just burst when you're assigned and then disengage when you're not. When you're a true servant, you just serve. And the whole of your life revolves around the kingdom. If you want promotion in the kingdom, the whole of your life has to revolve around it. That may seem like you don't get much of a life, but our life is not our own. We've been bought with a price. We're not trying to have as little as God as possible and still make heaven. We want as much of God as possible. And so uh, we ask this question again. Are you a servant or not? Could God point to Satan and say, hey, have you considered my servant Caleb? Have you considered my servant Gadiel? Or would he say, hey, <clears throat> you see this guy, Chuck? Yeah, I just wondered if you saw him or not. I got nothing to say about him. That's a good place to begin. Can God acknowledge you as his servant? It's a title you earn. You don't earn the title son or daughter. You don't earn the title born again. You don't earn the title of, of uh, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. Those are bestowed upon you with a divine calling. You don't earn the title of vineyard, 
or a soldier, these are given to you in the new birth. But to be a servant, you earn that title. You show up and you serve and you earn the reputation, I'm a servant of God. We're not interested in being the friend of God. Judas was the friend of God. And it's the last thing he ever heard Jesus call him. Amen. Last thing the Lord ever spoke to him in the garden. Friend, betrayest thou the son of man with a kiss? I don't think I want to get to heaven and hear Jesus say, friend. I'll say, I heard this before. I read this somewhere. And this may not go well. I know that's a popular song, but it's really popular among the backslidden who want to be lied to and placated about their carnal lukewarmness. It's not a day to be lukewarm. It's a day to be hot and closer than you can possibly be. And Satan says, well, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him? That tells us Satan can see these things in the demon realm. He can see hedges of protection. And he, what he's insinuating is Job fears you because you protect him. And you've made a hedge about his house. That tells us another place we can have a hedge. And about all that he has. Now, this is really cool because Satan is telling off on secrets of the spirit realm. Hedges around you. Hedges around your house. Hedges around your stuff. I believe we should pray those and claim them. But if you're not a servant, don't worry, you don't qualify. And then we have a doctrine called broken hedges. When stuff starts happening to us, we need to judge and say, where have I broken a hedge? The hedge, the concept of hedges is a very biblical, very Old Testament, very established concept. And the fact that Satan is debating God on this concept and the Lord's not rebuking Satan lets us know this is an established spiritual law, a hedge of protection to keep out serpents and goats and scorpions and foxes and wolves and anything that would hurt our substance. I, I believe it's perfectly acceptable to pray hedges of protection around your family, your possession, your business. If you had camels like Job did, camels, hedges around my camels, my vehicle. Sometimes it helps at the Walmart to park as far away as possible. Give it an extra hedge of protection because anybody that doesn't care about your car doesn't care about their body and they're not walking a long way. They're out there waiting for one of those electric hover rounds to be dropped off somewhere. So I park as far away as I possibly can, usually out there with all the other nice cars. You get out there and you see the brand new this, the brand new that, and you're like, we're on the same page, aren't we? You stay one space over, I'll stay a space away. It's cool. I get you. He said, you got a hedge about him, a hedge about his house, a hedge about all that he has on every side. You've blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land. This is the fruit of being a servant. But put forth thine hand now and touch all that he has. He will curse you to your face. And the Lord said unto Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. So when the hedge comes down, Satan has opportunity. God's not the one that does this. I wish we could be very clear on this. The ignorant, well-intentioned believers who say the Lord gives and takes away completely miss this passage in the first of Job that says, all that he has is in your hands, Satan. So who's the one that does the taking away? Satan. So by concept and extension, it's blasphemous to lay blame at the feet of God when it's clearly demonic. I wouldn't sing a song that says he gives and takes away because it's a lie. The same people won't sing a song about he judges me and demotes me because that feels judgy. But he gives and takes away. Nope, nope. I don't know where you get your doctrine from, but you should get a refund because it isn't acceptable. All that he has in your, is in your power. His house, his substance, himself. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. And so the only person, the only thing in, in Job's life that still has a hedge is his person, his individual person. But everything around him is now exposed to demonic attack. This also shows us that Satan is not omnipotent. He doesn't know the stuff. It has to be pointed out to him. Now, the real question that we won't answer tonight is why do these hedges fall? 
Well, I guess we will answer it. Job says here later, that which I have feared the most has come upon me. Now, I have a wonderful friend who's written a, a very thorough study of this. He, he debates that statement. I'm going to hold to it till I can be convinced otherwise. But Job says later, that which I have feared the most has come upon me. Job opens up with him constantly making sacrifices out of fear for his children who are prodigals, who are living like the devil, because he says, maybe it has been they have sinned against the Lord. So he's making sacrifices whether they've sinned or not, but he's worried He's worried about his kids. That might be worth kind of judging and say, maybe I should quit worrying so much about my prodigals and actually obey the New Testament, which says, cast all of your cares over on him. There's no sense with two people in your life being destroyed, you and the prodigal. Don't let the prodigal destroy you through worry. Don't let the prodigal aid you through worry. My, my friends who have lost two of their adult kids of the world, they said, we're not going, we're not going to hell for anybody. We're not going to hell for anybody. Anyway, Satan goes forth from the presence of the Lord. And there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. So this is some of the sin, sin, sin Job was worried about because he knew his kids were prodigals. Why not rebuke them? Why try to clean up their mess? We don't clean up messes. We rebuke sin. Once sin is repented of, then we clean up messes. We don't do our kids any service by cleaning up their mess without rebuking the sin that made the mess. And there came a messenger unto Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them and the Sabians fell upon them. Notice here, demons use warriors to destroy. So we have this concept that sometimes marauders, robbers, thieves, this is demonic action. Sabians fell upon your kids and took them away. Yes, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. He took them away. The kids were taken into slavery. Why didn't Job just rebuke that earlier? While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, the fire of God has fallen, or as the margin of my Bible says, a great fire. We know this isn't God. Satan's the one operating here. But again, if Job has ignorant doctrine, how much does his servant... A great fire is fallen from heaven and has burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I only am escaped to tell thee. Here's an instance where God was not in the fire, though there are times he was in the fire. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The Chaldeans made out the bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away. Yes, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And I only am escaped to tell thee. Alone. So you hear his kids have been taken slaves, servants butchered, his, his animals and sheep burned alive and servants burned alive. That's a demonic power. Sabians influenced by demons, fire supernatural demons, Chaldeans moved upon by demons, and Job loses everything. And this is a move of Satan. We might call it a satanic revival. Now, I think what is interesting is if you and I, if we had this happening, we would stop and say, get thee behind me. I rebuked you in the name of Jesus because we've been taught better. This is clearly demonic. All this coming against you, it's clearly demonic. We have better doctrine. We're not going to blame God for all this. At least you shouldn't unless you're just an ignoramus when it comes to doctrine and you're one of those, I don't know what to tactfully call you, a petty Christian that shakes your fist and says, why, God, did you do this? Wait, wait, it's the Sabians. Did you not read the verse? Fire, Chaldeans. I don't think God moves with those people. So only the ignoramus shakes his fist and says, why God? Instead of saying, Lord, judge me. Where was I wrong? Only the fool blames God. While he was yet speaking, there came also another said, thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in thy eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young men and they are dead. I guess the daughters escaped. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. So here's a case where there's a great wind, but it's not God because it's a demon. And so you have fire and wind and Sabians and Chaldeans destroying everything that the hedge no longer exists around. This also means that it would seem to me now that Satan had come and visited Job before and he was operating off of old intel. There was a time when there were hedges of protection around everything. And now they're not. So maybe we take a side jaunt here and just say, make sure you and I live clean, pure, and we keep those hedges by hedge, we mean like a literal hedge of thorny branches around our vineyard, a spiritual hedge that protects us from any onslaught of the enemy. 
If stuff is falling apart in our life, we should certainly judge our walk, our mouth, our money, our forgiveness, our faithfulness, our cleanliness. You can't, you can't be a pervert and expect God to protect you. You can't be violent and expect God to protect you. You can't be a tie thief and expect God to protect you. You can't be unforgiving and expect God to be able to protect you. God will fervently fight for his servants if they're clean. All right. And then Job arose, rent his mantle, shaved his head, fell down upon the ground and worshiped. He doesn't rebuke because he doesn't know how to. Job has no holy book to study. This is the first scripture theologians tell us was ever written, this account. He has no doctrine of authority. All he can do is fall down and worship God. He doesn't even know how to atone for certain things. He just worships God. He shaves his beard. He tears his clothes off and says, God is worthy. Naked came I out of my mother's womb. Naked shall I return there. That's accurate. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Those three words, hath taken away, contradict everything we've just read for the last 15 verses. So Job is inaccurate here. doesn't mean his heart's wrong, just his doctrine. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job said not, nor charged God foolishly. He's doing the best he can. He's not blaspheming God. He's laying blame at God, but he's not blaspheming because he thinks this is how it works. We have no record that Job has any doctrine to speak of. He's about to experience some. By the end of this book, he has really good doctrine because God says, who are you and where were you? And answer me because I'm going to demand one. And he doesn't get a chance to answer because the Lord just says, shut up. I'm going to tell you how this thing works. That's Job chapter 38 to the end of the book. Chapter 2. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said unto Satan, From whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and from the earth, and from walking up and down in it. We have no idea how much time has passed. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job? Still calling him a servant, not my former servant, not my apostate, not my wound-licking, petty, uh, petty, pity party, uh, mealy mouth, down in the mouth, blaming me, belligerent brat. He's still a servant. There's none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that fears God and hates evil. There's a really good key. Key to being a servant, fear God, not man, hate evil. Don't flirt with it. Remember that old hillbilly saying, if you lay down with sleeping dogs, you don't wake up the victor. You get up with what? Fleas. What's that a way of saying? You run with dirty people, you get dirty. Now, some of you may still struggle with cigarette smoking. I'm not trying to pick on that. But have you ever ridden in a car with the smoker? Who, when you get out of the car, who comes out smelling like who? Do they come out smelling like your cologne? Do they come out smelling like your perfume? Who wins that battle? Because there's their stink. And again, I'm not picking on anybody because I know some of you still struggle with it. Just get the victory over it. They win the battle of the odor because their odor is deeper impregnated, longer committed, permeating everything. You can honestly sit by someone on an airplane, a bus, in an Uber, at an airport, and walk away smelling like them. It doesn't take long at all. When I rent, do rental cars, I think every rental car in Michigan has been smoked in by some CEO who can't follow the rules. It doesn't matter how much they spray in there, it still smells like cigarettes. And I can smell like cigarettes getting out of a car that's not, not, uh, marked non-smoking, though they've cleaned it. I can get out and still smell cigarettes on me, though it hasn't been smoked in in a day or two and was totally Febreze. So when you don't fear evil and you run with it, it will wash over on you quickly. And we have to reject this lie that we can make a difference. You're not strong enough to. You're not strong enough to make a difference because they don't care. Job still had this reputation. He feared God and he hated evil. We have to fear God and hate evil. The New Testament says hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. We hate fleshy, sensual garments. We're not looking to dress up in them. We're not looking after them with lust to see if we can pull the look off. Oh, one, of the, 
One of the greatest spiritual mamas just said of daughters dressing too uh, provocatively, she said, honey, if pants are not your friend. I think she said that about big girls wearing tight, tight pants. She said, let's get you some dresses. Pants are not your friend. What's that? Oh, she said, you and I both know those were hard to get on. And then somebody says, just because they make it in your size doesn't mean you should wear it. And still holdeth fast his integrity. I think the theme of tonight, when you're sifted by Satan, is can you hold fast your integrity? Can you hold fast your faith without wavering? Although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man hath will he give for his life. But put forth thine hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thy hand, but save his life. Now the Lord removes the hedge about Job's life. Everything else is gone. Please, again, let's remind you, let's do a review here. As long as there are a hedge around his possessions and his homes and his family, Satan could effectively pull off nothing. But the second those hedges are gone, they went downhill quickly. All right? So when Satan, uh, so went Satan forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown, and he took unto him, and took him a potsherd to scrape himself withal, and he sat down among the ashes. Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. What a woman. I bet he was wondering, why couldn't you have died in the first round? <laughs> but he said unto her, thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. Sounds like he just didn't he retain his integrity. He had his backbone still too. By the way, when you run things, women, the world calls you a Karen. And Job calls you a foolish woman. The other thing I've noticed is some of you ladies, let me pastor you, because right now I'm just trying to encourage you for the battles ahead, but let me pastor you now. You like to use submission to your husband when it suits you, like to get out of responsibilities. Oh, I can't. My husband needs me. Oh, now you want to help him. I can't be there, you know, at the church. My husband wants to leave early, so I got to submit to him. Let's ask him how regularly you submit to him. So selective submission is not submission. It's wicked manipulation. So we have to help our ladies understand what this looks like. Just like we have to circle around and help men understand what this looks like too. But I like it. Job's covered in boils, lost everybody, but he hasn't lost his integrity. And he just looks at her and says, you sound like an idiot. And he slings pus to the ground. <laughs> what? Shall we receive good at the hand of God and shall we not receive evil? And all this did Job sin did not Job sin with his lips. So he goes on, his, his friends come to comfort him, and by the end of it, to have a full Job story, everything is restored. Job prays for his friends, they're restored and healed. Job gets a better wife, Job gets better children, Job's prosperity is returned to him. To have a real Job experience, because religious folks love to claim it, everything has to be healed, everything has to be restored, and theologians say the whole story took place over 18 months. So if you can just hold out for a few months, and be better than Job, the thing will turn. But the key is you don't curse God with your mouth. And you still judge things righteously and say, woman, shut up. Or buddy, shut up. Or sinner, shut up. The part of Job that I love is that he still called sin, sin. He still feared God. He still held to his integrity. If you folks compromise your integrity, you have nothing to stand on before God. Don't shortchange your integrity. Be who you are in Christ. The other accusation I've had against some of you lately, you know, I, I, the more I pastor, the more I travel, I get more and more removed from us, and we're not even a big church, so I don't know how the big guys do it. But they, some folks, some of you, your testimony is, well, pastor, they are different around you than they're around the rest of the body. And so, pastor, I don't mean to disrespect you, sir. They know how to kiss your butt, blow smoke up your tailpipe, and make it look like they do what you teach, but around the rest of us, people can't stand them. That's a lack of integrity. What it means, though, is if you can do it around me, you have the ability. 
So how about you respect everybody else the same? Because I'm not any better. I just pastor and preach. So why do you respect me more than you do your sister in Christ or your brother in Christ? Why the facade? You're capable of doing what's right. You just don't want to. So you only do it when you think it'll earn you something, which makes you a player and a two-faced one at that. <laughs> and there's no integrity there. Character is who you are when nobody's looking. And that's what you got to be. You got to be the same everywhere you go. So let's, let's review here. What do we see with Job's fiery affliction? Satan comes. There's a, two discussions, two powerful discussions, and he negotiates with God for what he wants to do. And God gives it to him, I believe, because of Job's, his kids' sin. That's who went first. And then that, that which I feared the most, that which I feared the most. It speaks heavily on the power of worry, the power of fear. Uh, the aroma of your heart draws things to you. We've taught on that. Fear and faith are the same voice. It's a voice of the heart. And even as I minister at times when the Spirit of God is strong on me, I can look on people, see and smell the aroma of confidence and faith, and you can see them going, yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's it. You can also hear and smell offense coming out of a person's heart, and you can hear and smell fear and insecurity. When people fear and they're dreadful and they're worried, even biology tells us it breaks your body down, it brings sickness, it brings disease, and it causes a lack of momentum. There are people like Joshua and Caleb in the book of Numbers that have a can-do, faith-filled attitude, and they're just a juggernaut. Nothing stops them, and everything works for them because they say, we're well able, let's just go do it. Amen. And then you got folks, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we gonna do? And nothing ever works for them. And the only difference between them is the voice of their heart. So my personal explanation of why Satan had access to Job is that even though he's walking in integrity, he didn't have full doctrine, he didn't have the authorization that we have in Christ, and he's still fearful of things because that's how we're introduced to him. He's fearful. Everybody has fear somewhere. He doesn't have anybody to look up to. He's all alone. His friends help him a little bit, then also don't. So we don't build all of our doctrine from Job, though we see glimmers of truth that we can then harvest and help understand things in the spirit. Now, this is important because when we come over here to Luke chapter 22, turn there with me. Luke chapter 22. Job isn't the only one in the Bible to have been attacked by Satan. He's not the only one. Satan approached the Lord and said, can I have him? Now, that's pretty concerning to think Satan goes to the Lord and says, I want Danielle. And there's a discussion. Two, we just looked at two discussions in the book of Job. And God doesn't say, what are you doing here? <laughs> How did you get in? <laughs> Who left the door open? <laughs> that angel fell asleep again. I promise you by my name, I'm going to so cast them down. He's like, where, where are you coming from? What you been doing? I will remind you, Satan has not been cast down. He's not in the ones in the abyss who were cast down because they didn't keep the first estate. He's still doing his thing. He's the God of this world. From all of our Bible study, we did this about five or six years ago. I challenged all the good students, the thorough, not bad, you know, that some of you are bad, but some of you are very thorough Bible students. I challenged about five or six of you, go prove to me that Satan cannot access heaven. And we couldn't prove it biblically. It's just kind of one of those charismatic doctrines that just felt like maybe it should be so. So we just kind of ran with it. But we have no biblical proof that Satan still can't come and go from the presence of God. His judgment is yet awaiting. When he's finally cast down in the revelation, it said he's fierce for his time is short. But that is still future tense. That's still in the future. So then you might say, well, in Luke, the Lord says, I saw Satan fall as lightning. Okay, was that prophetic? Because the revelation confirms the thing, but it's still future tense. And his tail swipes and takes a third of the angels with them, a third of the stars. So then you got to discern what do those stars mean? We don't have time to get into all that because it's eschatology. My point is this. Here we have another example where Satan comes to the Lord and says, I want your disciple. So let's read this. Luke 22, verse 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon. Behold, Satan has desired to have you. That's not, that's not really good, is it? Um, 
in the King James, it doesn't read well. The modern translations pointed out, you is plural. We would jokingly say in hillbilly, yins. Satan has desired to have yins. I think the modern translation says you all, because he's talking to all the disciples. Satan wants all of you. Now, to me, looking at Job, that means Satan has come to Jesus because he has before, and there's another discussion that takes place. How else would the Lord know this? Because the Lord has been eternal. He was there when Satan came for Job. And this is just playing out again. Satan desires all of you that he may sift you as wheat. That sounds horrible. Sounds like we're going to have a Job experience all over again. I don't want that. Oh, man. I mean, Job got sifted. Hardcore. I mean, they, they shook so hard, they sifted so hard, two houses fell down. Animals died. Sabians came and Chaldeans, the bad guys. That's some hardcore sifting. So Satan's still doing the same thing. He seeks whom he may devour. Years ago, Pastor Vaughn preached a sermon on this, talking about Satan seeketh whom he may, and he'd always stop and say, he may not. His, his affirmation was, I'm not going to give room to him. He seeks whom he may, but he may not devour me. And I like that confirmation, that affirmation. Now, let's talk about sifting real quick because we need to. I've taught this before. Hopefully, you understand it. When you sift wheat, it's one of the final stages before you grind it into flour, but you got to harvest it, and then you got to thresh it. That means you got to beat it. So he's not talking about a hardcore attack. That's threshing, beating it, flailing it, driving the threshing sledge over it, cracking up all the grains and the gumes and all that, loosening the bracts and getting the grain out. That's heavy, violent work. Uh, sifting is a little bit more gentle. Sifting is either you take a winnowing fan and you throw it up in the wind and you let it gently fall to the ground. And then you can even sieve it later where you have like a sieve and you just shake it. The whole purpose is to separate the wheat from all the chaff, all the stuff that's not desirable. And so I think if Peter had been paying attention, he'd have recognized that this is going to be a little bit more gentle. He didn't say threshing. He said sifting. So we already have kind of another concept here that there are attacks from Satan that are hardcore and there are attacks from Satan that are kind of gentle. And I would think you might agree that the hardcore ones are easier to fight because they're more blatantly the devil. Like you come after my kids, that's the devil. You come after my marriage, that's the devil. You come after my business, that's the devil. You come after my health, that's the devil. You offer me a job opportunity. You give me something better than evangelism on Saturday. <laughs> that might be a little bit more gentle to sifting because it's not as violent. Because really to sift, you just throw grain up in the air and you let the wind just kind of gently fall down and the stuff blows away. And it's, it's, it's almost melodic. It's almost poetic, almost like a ballet. Just toss it. Just toss it. Let the wind blow, you know, because God's always in the winds that are blowing. The wind of God wants to take me to another country. The wind of God wants to take me to this mission field. The wind of God wants to take me to this church. The wind of God is blowing me over here to maybe to give me this job opportunity. And it may not be the wind of God. It may be Satan sifting. But the Lord Jesus said, I have prayed for you. Now, when the Lord has to pray for you, now we don't believe uh, maybe like the Catholics do on this. He liveth to ever make intercession. So he's at the right hand of the Father, an advocate for us against the accuser. But uh, he's not in the earth, so his praying isn't like working today because if the Lord prayed today, we wouldn't have any problems. <laughs> but in the earth, in his earthly ministry, if the Lord's praying for you, it's about to be bad. I've prayed for you that your faith fail not. And he said, I'm not still praying for you I prayed it, and it's done. Now, notice it's not present, participle, continual, whatever. I did. Satan came to me. I prayed. It's set. But he says this, and when you aren't converted, that is when you return, because the Lord's already seen how it's going to, no pun intended, shake out. <laughs> it just fit there. Then I realized it was going to be a double pun. I didn't want it to be that. When you're converted, when you return, strengthen the brethren. So what does this sifting look like? Go to, uh, go to Matthew 
Let's look at Matthew's account. Satan is coming. Matthew 26. We know, we know what's coming because we know the story. I'm sure Peter knew the story of Job. Peter goes on to say in that passage, Lord, I'm ready to die for you. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm going to the cross with you. And the Lord has to look at Peter and say, no, Peter, before the cock crows three times, you will deny me three times. So don't talk a big game. The Lord already tells him the outcome. And, and though we aren't the Lord Jesus, we ought to be able to listen to one another, especially the experienced ones that can look at us and say, if you keep going this direction, it's going to be very difficult to recover from. You keep marching this direction, it's going to be painful. Would to God we be smart enough to listen to the elders and the fathers and the mothers and those that have experience, those that care about us, that we would get wisdom because we don't want to hurt. There's no sense reinventing the wheel. We don't want to have to re-experience pain that somebody else felt. Uh, we ought to look to the old people who've gone through life successfully and say, how did you uh, hurt yourself? Because I don't want to do that. So the Lord tells him, look, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter didn't listen. So Matthew 26, verse 69. Now Peter sat without in the palace or outside the palace and a damsel. This is a girl under 13. A damsel came unto him, saying, Thou also was with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied before them all, saying, I know not what you sayest. The sifting has begun, and it's as subtle as a 13-year-old girl saying, I've seen you with Jesus. This isn't a Sabian riding on horses or camels with swords, killing, pillaging, and enslaving this is a 13-year-old girl, and according to Jesus, it's the work of Satan. Sifting is as subtle as a communication in the grocery store. Sifting is as subtle as denying Christ to go hang with people. Sifting is as subtle as laughing at a dirty joke so that you'll be cool on the job site. Peter, the man who three hours earlier was ready to fight 600 men single-handedly with a sword in the garden, cuts off a man's ear, is now a coward before the confrontation of a 13-year-old girl, under 13, a damsel, not a woman, a damsel. This is as demonic as the Chaldeans riding into town and stealing all of Job's camels. This is as demonic as a fire coming out of the heavens and burning up all his Job's sheep. This is as demonic and as supernatural as a great wind coming out of nowhere, knocking down the four corners of the house and killing all of Job's sons. Except it's not as flamboyant. It's not as spectacular. It's just as effective. So we've got to be careful about these siftings because it's often eroding us and we don't even realize it. It's subtle Christ denial. It's being ashamed of Jesus. It's being afraid to uh, bow your head and pray over your lunch in the cafeteria or on the workplace. What's so damning about that? They're going to kill you on the workplace for praying? Walmart, classroom? Why are we such cowards? So easily sifted. Because remember, it's gentle. And we just get tossed in the air. The winds blow and we see what we're made of. That which is praiseworthy falls directly back down. It's grain. It's heavier. And that which is chaff blows a little bit further away because it's light. And at the end of the day, which pile in our life will be greater? At the end of our year, at the end of our semester, at the end of our career, which pile will be bigger? The grain pile where Satan sifted us and we fell right back to where we were before. You were with Jesus. Darn tootin'. Here's the sword, still got blood on it. You want a piece of this, sister? I can take you all here because you ain't got weapons, those other guys. Why, why all of a sudden the shift? 
You don't go to that tongue-talking church. Yeah. Does that clarify things for you? Why, why are we cowards? Some of you men, you don't even have a wife, so she can't have your voice. Why are we cowards? Would we deny Christ for the peer pressure of a lunchroom cafeteria or a workplace uh, rest area? break area? Will we deny Christ at family reunion at Christmas with workout buddies? Are we going to really be that cowardly? Because what's happening is every time we get tossed up and we get put into a, a confrontational place, what we're made out of is torn apart and blown. At the end of the day, we're going to have a chaff pile, but this shouldn't be the bulk of my life. Honestly, at the end of the day, I want Satan to sift me, please. Okay, maybe not. Don't. Because uh, it's going to show me what I'm made of. And I want some of that's moved out of my life. The Bible says, John the Baptist said that uh, God would sift us as well. You're going to be sifted one way or another to show you what you're made out of. God will sift you by commanding you to obey him and see whether you'll go with that. The devil sifts you by seeing will you deny him. Peer pressure, pathetic peer pressure. I want to be accepted because I got mommy issues. I want to be accepted because I got daddy issues. I want to be accepted because I'm insecure issues. We're going to deny Christ over that? Not worth it. Every one of us at the end of our life will have a pile of chaff and a pile of grain. We need to hope that that grain pile is much bigger, much heavier than the chaff pile. Otherwise, we're deluded. Every, every stalk of grain looks awesome until it gets sifted. Could be you shake that thing and no grain kernels fall out of it. Could be you shake it and it's just like giant dandelions and giant chaff. The whole stalk was nothing but chaff, but you don't know until it's tried. Let's keep reading. And when he was gone out into the porch, another maid. Oh, man, you think he'd remember what the Lord said. You deny me three times. One down, strike one, two to go. Another maid. I, I wanted to look at Matthew because it points out the first two con confrontations were girls. Here's Peter, probably 25 years old, salty fisherman, always has his mouth open, blabbing about something, swinging swords, belligerent, bold. He wilts in the face of girls. Another maid saw him and said unto them that were there, this fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth. Now, the first woman says Jesus of Galilee. This one says Jesus of Nazareth. So I think that's an interesting differentiation. They probably saw him in different places. And again, he denied with an oath. I do not know the man. So now he's taking an oath. He is swearing. I swear to you, I don't know who you're talking about. I swear to you, I, you know, Christians are dumb. I don't, uh, you know, I was raised in church. And my parents are still going, but you know, <laughs> those guys are dorks. Man, that's Christ denial. That's such Christ denial. You won't even share your faith? It's Christ denial. You, you won't even acknowledge your tongue talker? Christ denial. Won't even open up your Bible around them? Christ denial. Won't even pray over your meal? Christ denial. Won't even ask them to come to church? Christ denial. Won't even say, hey, you hurt yourself. Can I pray for you? Christ denial. How can we say we love anything but ourselves? Because you sure don't love them and you don't love God. Because if you love both... You'd be asking somebody, can I pray for you? Because I have a God that heals. I have a God that loves. I have a God that wants to help you. Otherwise, you're just guilty of Christ denial. Amen. Satan is sifting and he's winning. And after a while came unto him they that stood by, this is the third time, and said to Peter, surely thou also art one of them, for your speech bereath thee. We can tell by the way you talk, because he's just out there, you know, chatting it up with everybody in the temple, uh, uh, the palace courtyard, that they can tell by the way he talks. No, you got that Christian stuff on you. You're all churchy. It's bad when the pagans can hear your Christian accent and you're ashamed of it. I heard you say the word blessed. Only Christians use that word. I haven't heard you cuss all day. Only Christians don't cuss. I don't know if some of you know that. I know I pastor you. Some of you didn't know that. Only Christians don't cuss. So some of you, I don't know, you need to get your mouth right with your Christianity. Huh. It's something when the pagans say, no, no, your speech, 
deceives you. You are with him. Then began he to curse and to swear. That doesn't mean foul language. It now means he's had to take his oath to the next level and say, I swear to you, if I'm lying, may a curse come upon me. That's how adamant he is that he doesn't know Jesus. Now, we may not do that in our current culture because that doesn't mean anything to anybody, but may, we may be so pagan in our mindset, we have to prove to them by some feat of stupidity how much we're like them and not Jesus. Have sex with them, smoke a joint with them, get drunk with them, skip church to go do something with them, just listen to some music, just cuss like a banshee because, wow, I'm free. Same thing. You're denying Christ, except there's no cock to crow to warn you. He at least had a signal to know line was drawn, you stepped over it. We don't know where that line is for us today. There's no rooster that's going to go cock-a-doodle-doo, you're going to hell. We just want to stay really far away from it. We have to be convinced in our heart, if I'm at that fire and my life's on the line, I tell that 13-year-old, yes, I was with Jesus of Nazareth. Would you like to hear the stories? What would have happened if he stuck up? They weren't interested in the disciples. They wanted the Messiah, but he didn't know that. He has no idea what would have happened, and we don't either. Then began he to curse and to swear, saying, I know not the man. You know, when I was backslidden, I did cuss, and I did swear, in the old-fashioned hillbilly way, and I did it to try to show how much of a Christian I wasn't. I wanted to be cool because I was insecure. I wanted, to be in, I wanted to be cool and accepted because I was immature and hurting. That's the whole reason I was a punk with a chip on my shoulder running in the circles I did because I, I had something to prove. I had something to prove because I didn't walk with God. But when I repented almost at the age of 19 and got right with God, I no longer had anything to prove because I'm, I'm walking with God and I don't have anybody to impress because I'm walking with God and I don't have anybody I have to live for because I'm walking with God and it cleaned up my mouth and it cleaned up all my appetites. Some of them took longer to clean up, but it began to did a work in me. And I just, I'm curious as to why we call ourselves Christian and yet show no fruit of regeneration. Peter's fall took place in the evening. He recovered and never went that way again. He showed true signs of repentance. Uh, maybe this is a warning tonight that we can slowly deny Christ, not in the evening, over the course of years. And that's a long-burning delusion that there may not be any help or hope from recovery. You have to catch yourself every time you're embarrassed of God or embarrassed of your church or embarrassed of your brothers or sisters in Christ or embarrassed of your doctrine. You've got to catch yourself and say, wait, why am I embarrassed? What am I embarrassed? This is what's delivered me. This is what set me free. This is what healed my kids. This is what brought me a spouse. This is what gave me a job. Why am I? I have what they need. They have nothing I want. They have nothing I need. Why, why are we such cowards? How can we say we're born again if we're subtly denying Christ? Because Jesus made the promise, you deny me, I'll deny you. And there was no promise of redemption from that. That was the ultimate blasphemy. And Peter remembered, excuse me, and immediately the cock crew. Peter had a warning sign the Lord graciously gave him. Different dispensation, different era. We don't have warning signs to let us know that's it. But you know what? We have something better. We have a Holy Spirit who lives right here on the inside of us, who makes us miserable the dumber we get who convicts us and just makes us miserable and grinds us and pulverizes us so there's nothing left of us so that we know within ourselves we're not right. And we'll blame it on, well, I'm just having a rough day. You're a liar. You're a backslider. I'm just fighting discouragement. Nope, you're backslidden. Well, you know, I'm just under stress. Nope, you're not walking with God. Well, you know, it's really crowded, right? Nope, nope, these are all excuses. You know what's wrong with you. You're denying Christ, you're backslidden, and you're marching towards hell. One little subtle act of rebellion at a time. We don't need some chicken. The Holy Spirit's a dove, by the way. Ain't some rooster. He's, a, he's the dove. He's the Holy Ghost saying, repent, repent. Why are you ashamed of me? Why, how do you know what they're going to say if you ask them to pray for them? You don't know what they're going to say. Just shut up and ask them to pray for them. 
You, we don't know. Why, why do we live in our brain like a bunch of nut job psycho schizos have already played out the next seven lines of conversation. And so we're like, that won't work. So I won't even bother. You don't even know because you won't even open up your mouth. Just a coward. Just a coward. How do you know till you open up your mouth and say, can I pray for you? Can I, can I, can I pray for you in the name of Jesus? Have you heard about the gospel? You should come to my church. What's it like? Buck wild. You'll be uncomfortable, but it'll be good for you. You know, these pagans that some of you run with, they have no problem inviting you to a club, a bar, a porn party, seedy, demonic. They have no problem with how uncomfortable you'll be. And they expect you to deal with it. Why don't you help them reap a harvest? Bring them. Bring them to a place of holiness. Why are Christians more comfortable in bars than they are Pentecostal churches? What's wrong with them? Why are they more comfortable with that spirit than the spirit in the Pentecostal church? I don't get it. Except they're really, they're not spiritual. They're secular Christians who have a confessed faith, but not a lived one. Your confessed faith ain't going to get you into heaven. Your lived faith will. Jesus said, in a sense, put up or shut up. The cock crew. Peter remembered the word of Jesus, which said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now let me give you one last verse here to kind of tie all this together. We quoted this the other day. Go to the book of Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to read this out to you out of the NLT, which is kind of my favorite paraphrase for now. Verse 32 says, And what value was there in fighting wild beasts, those people of Ephesus? <laughs> Hear the word of the Lord. Well, that sounds racist. It's a cultural observation. God said it, so guess what? It be so. How did God view the cultured people of Ephesus? Wild beasts. That was their cultural reputation. And the rest of the, the Roman Empire said those people. You say those people in our culture, you're called a racist. But sometimes when we say those people, we're referring to their sinful lifestyle. What value was there in fighting wild beasts, those people of Ephesus? If there will be no resurrection from the dead, and if there be no resurrection, let's feast and drink, for tomorrow we die. But don't be fooled by those, things, those who say such things, for bad company corrupts good character. Paul, excuse me, Peter was too weak to be in the bad company of the palace. Just close enough to be in the presence of Jesus, like some of you coming to church. Just close enough to keep an eye on Jesus, but not bold enough to stand up for him. Oh, you're in the palace, all right. And you're warming your fires with pagans. Warming your hands. You can't even preach the gospel to a little child. Yep, you're, you're close to Jesus, all right. I was just with him the other day. We were praying together in the garden, and now I'm with him in the temple. Uh, yep, he's over there. He can, he can see me. I see him. He sees me, but I deny him. Is it worth anything? No. That's the deception of coming to church. I, I'm in church. God sees me in church. I see God in church. But do you confess him when you leave? Bad company corrupts good morals. He was saying, why even struggle with the Ephesians? You almost get the sense that he's ready to dust his feet off at them. I'm not even wasting my time on them. It wasn't a racial issue. It was a, I'm not wasting my time. They don't want the gospel. He said, don't run with those people. A bad company corrupts good morals. Good morals never change bad company. Good, good morals never change bad company. You and I have to recognize when we are outranked, outflanked, outstrengthed, we got to be able to say, I, I, I'm beyond my pay grade here. I don't even need to be a part of this. I can't make a dent here. I can't even make an imprint. I'm done. There's no point even being here. You've got to recognize when you're way out of your pay grade and way out of your league, lest they corrupt you. Bad company corrupts. Bad company corrupts. And when corruption comes, you will be judged as corrupted. So th this brings us to an interesting point that concerns me for these last days. You have what are called the unregenerate. Dr. Uh, 
uh, Hanner was teaching on this concept, and he didn't take it far enough, but I took it further studying it. He taught, talked about the unregenerates. That's, that's the pagans. They're unregenerate. But when we, when we get born again, we become regenerate. I like that. That's where we ought to live. But once you're regenerated, it's possible to become degenerate. What happens when you've been born again for a season and you slowly deny Christ and you let their corruption rub on you because you're too spineless to stand up for Jesus and make decisions that earn you the title of servant, you will slowly degenerate. And so we would rightfully be able to call you a degenerate. You are a degenerated Christian. You were once like us, unregenerated. You gave your life to Christ, got born again, got regenerated, but through choices and through decisions and through foolishness, you chose or I chose to slowly degenerate yourself. Every Christian has the ability to do it. It would be a pathway towards apostasy. It would be a pathway towards denying Christ. It would be spoken of in Peter where it says they've returned to their mire. They've returned to their vomit. And Peter goes on to say it would be better that they had never known the way of truth than once they've known it to turn from it. It's a harsh statement out of the epistles. My exhortation is recognize when you're being sifted. Sifting is not violent. It's subtle. Will you speak up at a family reunion? Will you speak up at the break room? Will you speak up when somebody says, anybody know anything about that church? Yeah, I can tell you about church. Will you speak up? When they ask you about your church, will you deny it? Yeah, I go to church. Well, you say, I'm sorry, I can't be there. What'd you do last night? Well, you know, I was, it was, you know, I was, I was occupied. Oh, you're not going to tell them you were in a Holy Ghost service. You're not going to tell them we had this wild church of God evangelist who laid hands on people, had folks laid out. Oh, you won't talk about that. You're taking a step towards degeneration. Your faith is degenerating. Your confession is degenerating. Whereas once you were bold and couldn't talk enough about it, you got ashamed. We're going to watch the great falling away. It will be fueled by peer pressure. We beat peer pressure in middle school. By we, I mean me. It still flares up from time to time. I don't like it. I can recognize it. And I curse it. And then I figure out whatever it's telling me to do. And I just do the opposite of it. If it doesn't like me speaking up, I speak up even louder. The one test I had to pass, I was trying to be more subtle years ago. I was like, what kind of church is your church? Well, you know, non-denominational. You know, I was raised Southern Baptist. I kind of use that as an inroad. That doesn't work much anymore because folks don't have any respect for the Southern Baptists because of all their corruption. Um, so now I just say, well, I was raised Southern Baptist, but my church is non-denominational, spirit-filled, tongue-talking. We pray in tongues. Lay hands on folks, cast demons out. It's one of those churches. Just to make them uncomfortable. If somebody's going to be uncomfortable here, it's not going to be me. It's going to be you. Because something in that statement, born again, tongue-talking, spirit-filled, cast out demons, lay hands on it, will stick. And then they'll see something on television, and they'll say, this is what that preacher guy was talking about. And they'll probably come back to me. But if I act like a coward, trying to be cool, I won't have any impact on their life. So wherever your cowardice is, you should lean hard against that. Figure out what's got you backing down. Where are you afraid? Where are you ashamed? And I'm not talking about being some kind of Upper Cumberland Pentecostal freak show, but be a little bit more bold. What church do you go to? Well, we go to Engrafted Word, or we go to Abundant Grace, or whatever your church you go to. What kind of church is that? Well, it's a non-denominational church, but we believe in the gifts of the Spirit. We believe the Holy Ghost is still moving today, convicts people to sin. He sets people free. We've seen demons manifest. We cast them out. We don't play with those. We don't play with snakes either. Don't bring any. <laughs> we speak in tongues. People fall down in the floor, and they get free. One of those churches, huh? Yep. And just stare at them until they get really uncomfortable. <laughs> Don't give one of those fake Pentecostal jerks. Don't do that. They're going to think you're on methamphetamines. or They'll give you an EpiPen to the neck or something. Or Narcan you. <laughs> you don't want that. Figure out where you're being sifted. If the devil comes like in a Job case, we got that. Man, we can see that coming a mile away. The devil ever comes to me and says, that pain in your side, that's a cancer. I'll grab it and say, 
you are such a stupid demon. I mean, I feel like every day with you, devil, is like opposite day. If you tell me it's cancer, it's just more muscle because I'm awesome. What are you doing? If he comes against my marriage, I can see that a mile coming. If he comes against my money, my kids, that's easy to see because we're smarter now. It's the subtle Christ denial stuff where he's the most successful in our sifting. Job had nobody pray for him in that issue. Jesus Christ had to intercede for Peter to make sure he didn't have a second Judas. Think about how powerful a sifting is. How many of you, you're like my age and older, we used to make donuts on Saturday mornings and we had the thing that did the powdered sugar. And that's just a gentle sifting. And you put that powdered sugar all over those homemade donuts, the whole house smelled like grease. It was never as good as Krispy Kreme, but Mama sure tried her best. Ended up like a beignet at a Cafe du Monde or something. Whatever, it's good. Just so gentle. How can something so peaceful send me to hell? Oh, just so gentle. It's just throw me up and watch how much my cowardice takes me over here to casting and, 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 and pitching my tent over there with the Philistines and warming my hands with the Philistines and denying Christ with the rest of the Philistines because I want to be accepted. We got to mark this, figure out where we're guilty of it and say, nope, never again, never again, never again, never again. If you're on an airplane or you're someplace and you, and you got your Bible with you and your mind says, don't take that Bible out, take it out anyway. Yeah. Yep. Travel with the biggest one you got. <laughs> yeah. I used to try to be more covert on my mission trips, but now I just, where are you going? Africa. What are you doing there? I'm a preacher. I got missionaries. I'm going to preach the gospel. We help pastors. We try to raise the standard of the culture. It's what we do. Where are you going? And they always feel second class after that. <laughs> well, I was on vacation. Oh, yeah. I was on safari. You like it? Yeah. You just say, they'll say, well, you ever been on safari? Yeah. How many? Way too many. I tell Scudder, I don't ever need to see another hippo the rest of my life. <laughs> Give me another mountain to climb. Because you can drive around and look at hippos or you can climb a mountain. Wherever you're tempted to be a coward, hone in on that. Quit denying Christ in front of a little prepubescent girl. I mean, really? Peter, how the mighty have fallen. We've all done it. So let's figure out where we're being sifted. If you have to, leave the palace because you, you can't handle the heat in there. Those two girls, man, they're wearing you out. Just leave. I don't belong here. Let me go find where the other guys are hiding out because I just can't handle it. At least recognize where your weakness is because I'd rather you run and recognize you're a coward than to deny Christ and I lose you forever. Amen?